Welcome to Equality Education, a show about inclusive teaching, supportive parenting and a kinder future. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Equality Education podcast with me, Ollie Pike. This week I have a fantastic guest for you who I was thrilled to speak with about so many interesting and not to mention topical issues. But before I get into all of that, let me say a big thank you to everyone who is supporting this podcast and my work with Poppinoli by becoming Poppinoli website members. I hope you have been enjoying the downloadable classroom resources, the exclusive chat room, and having a Poppinoli book donated on your behalf to a UK primary school every month. Yep, some pretty cool perks there, which you can learn more about at poppinoli.com forward slash donate. Okay, let's get back to the main event. This week's guest is a British poet of Greek Cypriot and Caribbean descent who was listed by the independent newspaper as one of the 100 most influential LGBT plus people in the United Kingdom. They have written two books which both explore ideas of race, gender and sexuality and last year they won the Stonewall Book Award in the children's and young adults category for their second book, The Black Flamingo. Yes, this week on Equality Education, my guest is poet and author Dean Atter. Hello, Dean. Welcome to Equality Education. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for joining me today. As always, can you tell everybody your pronouns, please? My pronouns are he and him. Awesome. And can you tell everyone a happy memory from your childhood? I think a happy memory from my childhood was getting a Barbie doll when I was a boy and also getting an action man figure and the Barbie doll was white and the action man was black and so they resembled my mum and dad in my head. Amazing. (laughs) So getting them to play together and um, you know make house together um, was a kind of way of me acting out my my parents or how I wish they had been because they didn't stay together my parents so um, the happiness was in the dolls. Oh, that's so sweet. And that actually, I really relate to that because um, mm. I had Barbie dolls when I was younger. And that's something that you touch on in your book, yes. The Black Flamingo, which is what I really want to talk about today. So first of all, let's just talk about how we met, which was a couple of weeks ago, we were on a panel together uh, for Pride in Education. And our panel was about... Um, published resources. Yeah, that what was it? I forgot. I forgot what you published resources um, for for teachers and school children and young adults. And I think what was really interesting about it was it kind of looked at the idea of published resources being windows and mirrors, which I, which I loved. I've never really heard that before. Had you heard that before? Only on the rehearsal call we did a few days earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did like a rehearsal. like Which also took a whole hour. Like our rehearsal for the hour panel it was an hour conversation do you remember <laughs> so that was quite funny <laughs> they should have recorded that as well it was really good because there was so much good stuff there's so much good stuff that we just drop even before we started recording today I was like stop stop talking because like we need to save mm. this for the podcast but yeah from that rehearsal call I was like oh quickly audio book Black Flamingo and I read the whole thing cover to cover in 
a couple of days. Uh, and what I loved about it, well, it made me feel really smart because <laughs> it's like it's like a spoken word poem type piece, isn't mm. it? Book, which is really, really different. Um, and so there's slightly less text on each page. Yes. So I just got through it so quick and I felt like an absolute genius for finishing the <laughs> book so quickly. Well <laughs> so that's like one bonus, but that is not the the most positive thing about the book. Um, what I love about it, it it's just so different and, and, and beautifully honest and raw, but equally it's like super fun and fabulous as well. <laughs> and uh, And this is your second book. I'm talking about The Black Flamingo. Yeah. And firstly, what I want to ask about that book is, well, when I picked it up and started reading it, it I was like, oh, this is this is like Dean's autobiography. And I didn't really like look much into it. I just started reading it. Yeah. And then it wasn't until I was like halfway through the book and I was like, oh, hang on. I don't think this is an autobiography because <laughs> the character, the main character in the book has a, a different name to you. Yeah. The, the main character is called Michael. Yes. And obviously you're called Dean. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, well, no, there must be parts of Dean in this story. So can you just clear that up for me? I'm not sure if I'm being really silly. No, you're not being silly. Um, I think I felt comfortable writing about subject matter I knew about and in the kind of character that I could most relate to. So I did choose a, a mixed race gay teenager growing up in London because I have been a mixed race gay teenager growing up in London and so I could use some of my own experiences to inform the character and also use research that I did working with um, young people in London schools and um, also just kind of what I've seen um, the change in things from from when I was a teenager to teenagers today you know there's a lot more information resources and um, role models for them so I wanted that to be reflected in the book as well so it wasn't an autobiography because if I'd written about my teens that would have been during section 28 when um, there wasn't the resources and the role models um so um, out there for kids to see um, because there was a law that prohibited uh, teachers in particular from from talking about um, gay people in school and so we didn't have access to that uh, at my at my in my teens but teenagers today do so I wanted to kind of write about that and um, base it in the here and now and not have it be kind of a historical (laughs) fiction (laughs) or a memoir or an autobiography because I wasn't ready to write an autobiography anyway I feel like um I don't know I want to live a bit more before I write an autobiography um so I just yeah I, I used what I knew and also um who I am to inform this character of Michael and so yeah he does have similar um, background to me and some similar traits to me but um, he got to do things I didn't do when I was a teenager mm-hmm. so <laughs> I got yeah. to have a lot of fun with him um, and I felt like it was like a fairy tale version of what I wish my childhood could have been like. Yeah I guess it's like a imaginary coming of age story then. Yeah I didn't come of age till I was 30 I think. Oh right yeah really. <laughs> it took me a while to kind of not not the coming out part but the kind of confidence part and the um, feeling bold enough to do drag I didn't do that until I was like 30 something and so I think that is the kind of and it's similar a lot of people my age say they took a while to come out or have their first hurt have their first relationship or to kind of 
come out to certain family members you know they might have been out to some people yeah. but they might have kept it quiet from their family and I think that's very common um for people in their 30s 40s and older but I think anyone in their teens and 20s I think it's slightly different so um there's that um kind of generational difference going on as well um which feels weird to think of myself as a whole different generation but I am to the teenage readers um you know I'm I'm of of a different generation to them yeah. so that's why it's not an autobiography because I'm kind of putting myself in their shoes and their high heels and um <laughs> it it's just a it seems a lot more um free and um a lot more hopeful for young people today mm-hmm. i think it was really difficult for people my age and older can I ask you what age you was when you came out and how you felt before you came out kind of like what was your journey to your realization I just wanted a boyfriend oh and so, <laughs> um and so I had a crush and um gosh now you're gonna see how close to my life the black flamingo is I had a crush on a boy and I asked him out with um with a letter oh. and it got round the school um yeah and that was it and I was out and and so it wasn't really a coming out as such it was like an asking out of one person and them saying no but then everyone else being like oh so you two like um and the thing is everyone thought we had gotten together because they were like oh you asked him out like are you two together now and I'm like no he said no and then everyone at school was like haha he said no you got rejected no one was like oh you're gay that's bad they were like you got rejected and that lasted a few days or a week and that was it like no wow. one really commented on me being gay or liking a boy they was just like you got rejected <laughs> like and that was it that was the only that thing that is so interesting mm. and not that I want to mock the fact you got um rejected but like that's weirdly <laughs> positive yeah um um what what year was that um that was so I was yeah 15 so what are we year 9 is that or... What what date? So what two thousand and Oh what year was I fifteen? Um oh God. I don't know. It's all a blur. I'm an old man now. No, I'm thirty-five. Work backwards, please. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been a similar age to me then. So that would have been yeah. like maybe year two thousand. Because okay. that would not have happened at the school I was at. Like no what way. What kind of school were you at? Um like a comprehensive. Yeah, school. Um and yeah, that was just not mm. on the table to come out because that would have been like the end of your school life um, <laughs> f- at where I was. So that's incredible to hear that, you know, across the country at the same, relatively the same time. Mm. So you came out as gay, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Like, I mean, I didn't come out. That's the thing. I just asked a boy out. And so then people are like, and then I think, let me think back properly. I think I then had a girlfriend afterwards but like all we did was kiss and like she was like, don't you want to do more? And I was like, no, I do not. <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> and then I think I went to university as bisexual um, and then I wasn't like I knew, I realized I knew I wasn't. And so then, you know, I think it wasn't until university I really came out as gay. Like I felt confident saying I was gay or saying anything about my sexuality. Like when I was younger, I didn't really like labels, so I didn't call mm-hmm. myself black, like, but I didn't really even call myself mixed race. Like, I didn't call myself anything to do with ethnicity at first, and I didn't 
want to label my sexuality as anything either. I think if I was a young person dead today, I might have said I was like pansexual or something. Uh, or oh, or okay. I don't know. Like I just didn't like labels. Um, and mm-hmm. it's only later in life I've kind of understood their use um, and understood um, kind of how they can be a shorthand to find community and how to, you know, connect with other people or to have people roughly understand you. They don't give someone a full understanding of who you are, but they give a rough understanding of who you are. And so, you know, though I'm mixed race, like I will say I'm black because it's more um, of a political statement for me. And then I am gay and I am, uh, and, you know, I sometimes use queer as well, but that's not really about sexuality for me. That's about community. And I think there's a lot of people that identify as being queer um, with various sexualities and, um, you know, gender expressions and such. And so I find queer is an interesting umbrella term for for many people within the LGBT community. And it's quicker than saying LGBT. <laughs> so I just say yeah. Queer. Oh my gosh, it's such a di- it's such a difficult acronym. Yeah. I feel I prefer to use the word queer, mm. and I like the word. I feel like the word queer is more inclusive yeah. because basically queer means anything but straight. Yeah, but there are but some you can older still join people. us if you're a straight ally. Yeah, but there are some older people that don't like the word queer because you know that used that word was used to you know as hate speech against them, and um, mm. you know they might have they were literally you know queer bashed. People would go out queer bashing so they would go out to beat up anyone non-straight and um that was something that that that's probably scarred a lot of people and stayed with them so the word yeah. queer has hugely negative connotations for them so you have to kind of check when using queer if everyone you're talking about is comfortable with that phrase um exactly, obviously yeah. you can use it for yourself if you're comfortable but when attaching it to other people you just got to check if they're okay with it yeah i think it's about context and actually what's mm. really interesting is the last couple of sentences you just said, we could apply that to the name of your first book. <laughs> yes, we could. <laughs> um, the title has the N word in it for anyone that's listening. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that first book because that is, you you wrote poetry and spoken word before because you've written loads of mm-hmm. wonderful pieces. Um, but that book is kind of like a collection mm-hmm. of lots of different pieces of work. Yeah. And... Do you want to just talk about what the inspiration behind the book was? Um, well, the book kind of came together after all the poems were written. So um, I started writing poetry seriously in, say, 2003. And um, by 2012, like, I'd written a particular poem called I Am Nobody's N-Word. And that poem mm-hmm. was... Um, viral like online so it went on youtube and it went kind of like got spread all over the place and that was written in inspiration for it was like the the conviction of two of the killers of stephen lawrence um, but also um, reflecting on my relationship to the n-word um how i felt about it being used um about me how i felt about it being used in hip-hop music how i felt about it being used amongst my friends and um yeah and and I kind of like made my statement about how I felt about that word um and because of that particular poem uh, publishers approached me and asked if I had enough poems for a book and because I'd been writing for about nine or ten years I did and so I kind of brought together all my kind of best poems that I had and 
found an order to put them in and got an editor to work over them and then we put them out and um yeah it was great to have a book out it wasn't a conscious kind of decision at first it was because the publisher approached me it wasn't really something I was looking to do I was very happy performing my poetry and putting stuff online and um, you know writing for commission and doing poetry workshops in schools and I was you know just ticking along having a, a great time like you know saying my piece wherever anyone would have me and um, yeah a book wasn't really part of the equation and it was another poet called Benjamin Zephaniah who really encouraged me to go forward with the book idea because he was like you know people will take you so much more seriously if you publish a book like that's just the fact of how things work in this country you know and you could have loads of performances online you could kind of make you could make an album but like um you know Mm -hmm. people won't see you as a as a real writer unless you have a book. And so I I really took um, heed of that. And, um, you know, Benjamin really kindly wrote a nice quote to go on the front of um, I'm Nobody's N-Word. And um, that was really nice to have his endorsement because, yeah, he he was one of the people that encouraged me to actually do it. Um, And so, yeah, it was was a really um, a collection of poetry about growing up in London, about being mixed race, about being gay, about um falling in love and out of love and uh, being bitter and heartbroken and um there's a whole range of things in that book it was really interesting because it starts off really political and then gets quite personal toward the end of the book and that was just the journey of my writing I guess that I'd gone on or or the journey I thought that people definitely wanted those really hard-hitting um political poems and that's why they're right at the front of the book but then I would kind of lured them into some stuff about family and some stuff about you know relationships and um a poem about grinder and like <laughs> <laughs> just kind of get in there with the stuff I also um wanted to say because I don't want to be restricted to just talking about one subject matter or or kind of one type of poetry um I can be angry I can be sad I can be happy I can be you know confused and um I think that book reflects that um and yeah it's quite wide spanning in its kind of view it looks at the world it looks at specifically my own family it looks at lots of different things and so I wanted to yeah I'm glad that book is in the world and um and yeah I want to follow it up soon with another poetry collection and initially when I started working on what was the Black Flamingo before it was going to be a collection of poems and then we, um, my agent and editor kind of had a conversation about what, what could be done with it. And actually the idea of turning it into something narrative and fiction, um, seemed really exciting. And I'd read a couple of verse novels that really inspired me, like The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. And that, um, you know, the way it narrates, um, with poetry, it's just really beautiful. And I was like, I could do that. Like I've, I've written plays, I've done lots of different types of writing. So the only thing I hadn't really tried to do um, besides film and TV is a novel. So I was like, let me, let me do this. <laughs> let me try this. So um, yeah. And we did it. When you go into schools with your first book, I'm really interested like to know what the sort of reactions you get as well from, from teachers firstly, but then also from the pupils. Well, some teachers, some teachers just couldn't have that book in schools. Um, and so that was a big reason of wanting to write The Black Flamingo and write it specifically for teenagers was because 
a book called I'm Nobody's N-Word is quite confrontational and um, it can be um, difficult for teachers to um, get senior leaders to sign off on that visit from a poet that wrote that book. Um, but The Black Flamingo is a bit more, um, you know, it's got a gentler kind of approach to talking about a lot of the same things. That's the funny thing, like the content of those two books are very similar Yeah. Um, in terms of talking about race and sexuality and relationships. Um, but it, it one is kind of in a very confrontational manner and the other is a bit more gentle and kind of lures you in. Um, and then like this, there's certain pages where you're like, wow, this is quite hard hitting. I'm talking about the Black Flamingo now. There's certain pages where, you know, it's talking really directly about race, talking really directly about um, sexuality or sex. And, uh, you know, that's quite interesting because YA is full of that. Like books for teenagers have drugs, sex, alcohol, you know, all sorts Mm -hmm. of things. But they don't necessarily put that on the front cover. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but there's obviously it's... um, approved yeah. you know like teachers and librarians have, have, have voted for it for several awards and you know it's not something that um you know people have said it is suitable for teenagers and I get yeah. lots of messages from teenagers that are loving it um but you know it's different to write with them in mind in particular and that's everything you know from you know whether or not you use swearing to how you know you research into what it's like to be a teenager today and also, you know, the cover, the title, all of that matters. Um, so, yeah, and the length and the readability. And like you've said, it's quite a page turner. And, and, and that is because of, you know, it's telling you a story and you want to know what happens next. Um, with a poetry collection, like my first collection, um, each poem is its own thing. So you could read one and put it down. And then, you know, come back to it whenever. But with a, a novel, you you read one mm. and it kind of leads you to the next one and the next one and the next one. So, you know, all the pages are kind of individual poems, but they're also pointing you to carry on reading and um, turn the page and see what happens next. So they don't fully conclude themselves. They kind of like leave you hanging a bit, um, which was really fun. I've read one of your poems from your first book called young black and gay and a lot of the way you've kind of intertwined the different identities into that poem and I feel like that's what you've done like you just said with black flamingo it's like it's constantly mm. looking at gender and identity and and race but it's all kind of like tied together and there's some really really lovely moments in there thank you and for me as as a white person reading it there was you know it was informative and, and it mm-hmm educating as well there's there's one moment which I took a little bit longer to read and it was that it was the it was about when Mickey or Michael was in the car with his uncle and his uncle's like this character who's just like really friendly like loves his nephew so much like will do anything for him he's kind of like his hero and there's just a moment when they're in the car and they get pulled over by the police and it's kind of like the only moment when you see Mm his uncle a little bit crushed, I think, but then not totally crushed because then he goes on to kind of speak to Michael about, well, I guess you're talking, he's talking about white supremacy Mm -hmm. at that moment in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was something Michael couldn't have known at the age he was, you know, so as a teenager, he was quite protected, I think, um, in the story, you know, he doesn't necessarily come up against um, overt racism and he 
has the privilege of being mixed race as well, you know, and so there's there's some some privileges to that. Um, but you know, his uncle is a black man um, of Jamaican heritage, and they're stopped by the police, and the police make a lot of assumptions about his uncle, and his uncle lets Michael know that this isn't a one-off occurrence. This happens to him a lot and he's sick of it and he's tried his best to, you know, assimilate, to get education, to get a good job, to, you know, be an upstanding citizen and still he's treated with uh, suspicion. And um, and so he, he just, you know, loses his temper a bit. And it's really interesting for Michael to see that because he's never seen this side of his uncle and um, it really opens his eyes. And um, that was really important for me and people have commented on that quite a lot that that moment in the book because Michael's learning something new at that point and therefore you know the reader might also learn that along with Michael yeah and then other people who have had that experience recognize it and and feel seen by that moment in the book as well and you know I've also published the Black Flamingo in America and um, they say that interaction could have gone very differently with American police you know and we're hearing about all the police Um, you know brutality and and murders by police officers and and so that is I guess you know the difference is that our our police for the most part don't pull out their guns first Um, you know they might taser you first maybe or or just strangle you to death which does happen still you know so our police aren't aren't faultless but they're not killing black people at the rate of American police and so that book my book reads differently to American readers because that is an even more deadly situation in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, um, I think we still feel like I'm not, I, I can't speak for all black people, but you still feel like you could challenge the police if you feel like they're treating you unfairly here in the UK. But I think in America, young people, black people are, are taught to like not talk back to the police because you could just get shot like not not run, not not make any sudden movements, not, you know, let them disrespect you and deal with it afterwards if you get away. Um, uh, and that's really tragic to think mm. that's how people are living their lives and um, in fear, you know, all the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of, I think I deal with that moment with fairly light touch, you know, um, because it doesn't go badly, you know, but it could have and there are stories um, there are many people that still haven't got justice for dying in police custody. So, um, you know, in the UK. So it's not something that I, I wanted to clumsily deal with. But I, so I had to find the right moment for it to happen in the book. And it's a transitional moment for Michael. So his uncle's actually driving him to university um, to where he's going to be, you know, living. And um, so it's a moment of like he's receiving his education before he get even gets to university. Um, so that's kind of how I saw it Um, so there's some things that school and university just can't teach you see for me that moment is the perfect example of what we were talking about earlier but didn't finish talking about um, a perfect example of windows and mirrors and I feel like that moment Mm. will unite all different types of readers of different races so for me it was a window looking into someone else's world and Mm. And seeing what's going on and, and then for readers who may be black or mixed race then that's a mirror for them yeah. um and the fact that that moment is so relevant right now hmm. with everything that's going on in the world when did so when did you write black flamingo so 2017 18 because it yeah 
Yeah. Because that's two years ago. Yeah, that that page could not be more relevant. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's scary, like, looking at what's going on and realising that, you know, people could pull out books and poetry and writing by James Baldwin or people that were writing in the 60s and it still feel relevant to today. And that's the tragedy of things, that we haven't moved on so much as we had hoped we had, um, you know, and, and for a lot of people, um, we haven't moved on at all. And the changes are happening for the wealthy, the middle class, the famous people, you know, black pop stars and athletes and stuff are, are doing great. And a black president, um, you know, some black politicians are, you know, there, but they'll tell you, you know, Diane Abbott, Dawn Butler will tell you about the racism and misogyny that their offices receive, that they personally get tweeted at them. And so we haven't moved so far along. And I think something like Brexit showed us, you know, there were many reasons people would have voted for or against Brexit, but it's it's unearthed some some deeply disturbing, you know, racism in our society as well. Um, and it's also, you know, when we look at injustices um, or inequalities um, around COVID-19 and, and who's dying and, 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 and we're just not sure exactly why, but a lot of it looks like societal um, injustice and, um, you know, inequality in, in the kind of structures of our society. So whether it's institutional racism um, or other factors. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's hard to know even where to begin sometimes, you know, and, and we're pointing out some of the problems and, but us, you know, I say, you know, black people are also asked to find the solutions. So like you'll hear mm. someone like Angela Davis talk about abolition of prisons and, and, um, taking down, you know, um, prisons and dismantling and defunding the police, but people are like, but then what? Like, and you expect someone to say, have all the answers about what should happen, um, you know, but so you don't get rid of the corrupt institutions because you can't think of what will replace them. That's really not good enough. And so it's just really difficult. We look at the statues being torn down and um, we look at the calls for people to, you know, diversify the curriculums, um, for example, you know, and university and school curriculums and get more black history, get more LGBT um, history on the curriculum all year round. Um, and people are like, think it's going to push out other people. And, and you know, it's not. It's going to kind of enrich what we're going to be learning. And we're going to see things with a, with a, a wider perspective and uh, different points of view. And that can only help us understand each other better. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot to grapple with. Um, it's it's too much for this podcast, and it's too much for me sometimes <laughs> to even keep in my head to know what is it we we we're kind of fighting for because it's it's literally everything. We're fighting for our lives. Um, we're fighting for equality. We're fighting for um, you know. In America, it's tragic because you know they don't have healthcare for all people. They they don't have a, a kind of benefit system the way we do. And um, the inequalities are so much starker, I'd say. I could be wrong, but that's the way I see it. And I'm only kind of really having an eye on America more recently now that I've got a book out there and I'm doing panels over there as well as here. And I feel um, a bit lost when, when kind of trying to talk about Black Lives Matter in a US context. But in a UK context, I think we are just 
polite about racism and we've just embedded it into our institutions and so people might not call you an n-word but they'll still not give you a job if you have the wrong last name or the wrong color skin and that does happen and um, so I think we've got to really face up to the way we've got racism embedded in everything here Um, and just because people aren't overtly racist all the time it doesn't mean that they don't have prejudice and bias against people um, of color and so that's something we need to um, figure out and you know we we know that there's huge problems with um, you know transphobia in our society and um, I think you know we've made such great strides for um, you know the L and the G and maybe the B but like um, I think for trans people we haven't um, we're letting them down right now and so I think it's not about just thinking about black lives or trans lives it's about being intersectional in your approach and thinking about all people you know people with disabilities people um, women who are you know not paid as as well as men for the most part like thinking about where our society is letting people down and addressing that every time we see it um not just for the group that we belong to because i think mm-hmm. that's essentially what everyone does you know and that's why the status quo is maintained because we live in the uk and most people are white and most people are straight and so everything's working fine for them like so we we have to think beyond and outside of our own identities and think about other people you know less fortunate or people we can ally with or unite with um to fight together I feel like we're in such an interesting time. Mm. Uh, I I don't know. I feel as much as it's sometimes hard to watch and read, it's mm-hmm. I'm optimistic because <laughs> it's exciting. It's exciting seeing them statues being torn down. And I know so I know like that can be problematic for some people, but honestly, for me, I was like tear their statues down. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Other people will be like, well you know, do we have to tear every statue down? And, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But mm. just the fact that that statues were taken down and, and they put, actually put up a statue, I don't know if you've seen, of um, a Black, Black Lives Matter protester in its place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And seeing that gave me goosebumps. And I was like, this is this is our new history. Like we are recreating the world. And I feel like little light bulbs keep going off in everyone's minds and like like you said we're slowly stepping outside of our identity bubbles and connecting with other identity bubbles and everything is becoming intersectional Mm. and that's what your book does so well and that's why i think you know black flamingo will be such a useful resource for for teachers in secondary school um to teach about different identity aspects i hope so Oh, let's talk about drag. That's what we haven't spoken about. So you have experience of being a drag queen, much like the character Michael in Black Flamingo. Yes, but I came to it much later than Michael did. So I I did drag in my 30s and he does drag at 19 at university and he slays it. And um, I I kind of channeled some of my own like... um, nervousness and you know messing up my eyelashes and <laughs> and, and kind of learning that eyebrows are sisters not twins <laughs> and uh, learning to walk in heels and um feeling 
that power when you step on stage and everyone's looking at you and admiring you and eating out the palm of your hands. And if you want to tell them to just clap for you for no reason, they will. Like <laughs> if you, there's certain little flourishes and things you can do to just make people whoop and holler. And you just feel so mm-hmm. powerful when you're on stage in drag. It's just an incredible feeling. Um, obviously I've only done drag in context where I was wanted and welcome. And I think that's, um, um, you know, so I've never taken drag to anywhere where they weren't expecting me, if you know what I mean. And so, um, I think about, you know, when I, when I'm in drag, I, I kind of feel super empowered, but it's not necessarily how I want to dress every day. It's not an expression of my own gender. It's just a, a kind of playfulness that I get to, mm-hmm. um, you know, try out and, um, you know, feel, uh, this character. And I think it kind of connects for me back to, you know, acting as a kid and, and, and doing plays and, and musical theatre and stuff like that. Um, but there's something else because it's, it is, there is a version of you in your drag persona, even if you've come up with something so wildly different to yourself, it's still you that has to put that costume on. And, um, you're there underneath kind of channeling that, that energy or that character. Um, but I think, Drag is something everyone should try. Um, I think everyone should give it a go. I'd say everyone should try write a poem as well, but I just think it's, there's, there's something of you that doesn't come out in your everyday that gets to express itself in drag. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of fun mm. and the venues where it happens are, are usually really supportive, friendly, amazing places where, you know, everything goes, um, as long as it's, you know, respectful. And so that's what I love about drag. I think you just really well, uh, described the difference between our gender identity and, and drag. Cause obviously our gender identity is, you know, which gender we feel we are. Um, but mm. drag is like playtime. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But, you know, there's sometimes where I felt sad about, um, for example, I've done drag and, um, you know, got dressed at the venue and then to go home, I've had to really reckon with, I'm quite comfortable wearing this just to get home, but am I safe? Yeah. And, um, knowing that I wouldn't necessarily be safe to travel home unless I took a taxi, really breaks my heart for the people that I know that express their gender through, Mm. uh, you know, makeup and and clothes that aren't um, the mainstream way of presenting yourself. And that's really heartbreaking, you know, when I think of my friends that just genuinely don't feel safe, but that is who they are. Like, that's how they want to be in the world and the world isn't ready for them. Like, and that's just really sad and heartbreaking that, that it's still so dangerous to present in a way that, people aren't expecting or people aren't used to seeing um you know so it's 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 pretty mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty hard out there and um that's why I kind of love the the queer spaces the safe spaces that we create for ourselves where where those you know whether you're doing drag or whether you're a, a trans non-binary person that wants to um that only feel safe in these venues to truly express who they are um you know because you know often people come to venues and get dressed there yeah get dressed and do their makeup um in the in the toilets of the venue and take it off before going home or take a taxi home because you know the public transport or the streets themselves are not safe and um that that's criminal really that 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 should be the case that people don't feel safe because obviously is criminal if someone attacks you because of how you're dressed or what what makeup you have on they are breaking the law 
but you know do you do you feel safe to even contact the police if that happens or do you know if you'll you'll get out of that situation um without serious injury so do you want to risk it mm-hmm. and and that's what really breaks my heart yeah um, me too. and so sometimes as a cis person I want to like go out in makeup just to like normalize it or usualize it for people. Um, but I know I don't feel safe either. And that's really hard. You know, I, I'm, mm-hmm. that's why we need pride marches. That's when we're all there and we take over the streets. And, um, I think that's what, when the real importance of those, uh, those, those times of community out in the open, in the daylight, um, is really important because there's so many people that can't do that on an everyday basis, but, on a pride march they can they can dress up the way they really want to or the way they just feel like that day but it's just like we the safety in numbers is the amazing thing and um you know the the defiance of societal norms and uh the kind of just mm. embracing of our uniqueness and our beauty um it's just fantastic on a pride parade or march um so yeah, yeah i've missed not having prides this year i've done a few online prides of course but it's not quite the same as being there on the streets. (laughs) Everything you just said is something that I really relate to. Like pride is so important for me because it's like, yeah, it's one of the few days where you really get to express yourself through your clothing and through your decorations and through your art. Mm. And as much as I love pride, that it feels safe when you're there, even that journey to pride, Mm. I've myself had to sometimes second guess what my journey is going to be like and be like oh do I really want to wear this crop top because I've got to travel on the train Mm. and is it going to be safe and there's been lots of times in my life when I've removed accessories or items of clothing because I don't want to give away my queerness Mm -hmm. and I guess for some people drag will be that time where they can kind of make up for that lost what they've lost and Mm. I think for me it's like that's why I started my YouTube channel because it's like I can be anyone on my YouTube channel (laughs) it's it's safe I can wear cat ears if I want I can wear a pink jumper Mm. um how do you deal with negative comments on YouTube if you get them oh I generally donate a book on their behalf and then I let them know (laughs) (laughs) and then they and then they stay pretty quiet after that Um, I, I sometimes even write the troll's name on the donation slip ah. which is probably illegal <laughs> but it's quite cathartic for me so <laughs> yeah um but yeah so i i guess it's interesting because even though i said drag is playtime i guess for some people drag isn't just playtime but also drag is like big business for some people like you know there's there's people making a, a really good living from drag, you know, not just RuPaul, not just people from Drag Race, but people, you know, who have made a career as a drag performer, and 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 I just think it's a, it's it's something that I'd never thought about, and really something that I mostly did as research for the book, but it's something I admire so much more now that I've written about it and tried it for myself because. It's a tough job. It takes a lot of work and, uh, you know, to have a variety of acts as well. Like it's one thing to be a, you know, one trick pony, you know, but to have a variety of acts and costumes, whether you buy them or make them, that's hard work or a lot of money um, in terms of like making outfits or buying outfits um, and just keeping it fresh for yourself and 
doing those hours, it's like late night work. And then, you know, it's just so much to it. Like, I just, I think drag performers are amazing. Like, and they make the world so much more joyful. And so I, I just think they should, they should be like our rulers. Like, <laughs> my next book might be like about a world ruled by drag queens <laughs> and kings. <laughs> my, my friend, uh, Callum Muxwigan, I don't know if you know him, yes. but um, he's just written a book and he, he wrote something really clever in it about drag queens drag queens he said that they're the hostesses of our community mm. which i really love because it's like when you go to like a new drag bar, uh, a new bar if there's a drag queen in there you're like oh okay cool mm-hmm. they're gonna know what's going on they're in charge here um mm. so even though they can be quite intimidating yes. i feel like yes. there's that element of safety with them as well yeah well i remember when i kind of got into the london scene like big time like and i was going to circus which was run by jody harsh and um, she is incredible, massive hair, like amazing DJ, amazing life and soul of the party, brings together all the most fabulous people in in amazing clubs. Um, and then I met her a few times as Jodie and then I met her as her boy self and like so shy, so, so, so unassuming. So, and I was just like, wow, the transformation from like the boy to the, the drag queen was just huge and I was just like that's so interesting because I think the reason Mm. I'm okay not doing drag a lot is because I'm actually quite confident as me like I've actually had to build up a lot of resilience as me because I've been out as me for a long time like I've been performing for a long time and I never had anything I used my real name from the beginning like a lot of poets I know have like a poet stage name like and they have like a almost a persona a character as a performer of poetry but I was just like this is me like this is me learning to just say what I mean and and you know people can take it or leave it but I'm gonna be myself and so I kind of really like who I am <laughs> and so like when I do drag it's something else and it's it and it's uh it's it's super fun but I almost see it as like Dean Atta as the Black Flamingo rather than fully becoming mm-hmm. someone else called the Black Flamingo if that makes sense I think sometimes for some people, these personas are like armor. Um, mm. And I know that's something that I kind of used to do because um, my background mm-hmm. is in acting as well. And I think mm-hmm. on my YouTube channel, on the pop on the YouTube channel, the Ollie on there is a character and it's not necessarily me, even though it's got elements of me in it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that was a way of kind of keeping the real me safe. But as I've kind of got older mm-hmm. and dis- discovered the real me a bit more, I'm... I'm happier to share that version. Yeah. And like you, I quite like the real version of me. And I feel like that's kind of what I try and share on this podcast. As much as I love Ollie from Pop and Ollie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess that's my experience. Cool. Okay, final topic. I briefly just want to get your views on something that's been quite current recently. Uh, in terms mm-hmm. of maybe a few authors that are getting cancelled. Um, and I'm sure you know who they are. Um, <laughs> you know, we've got... Can I just say, though, I do not believe cancelling is a real well, This thing. is what I want to talk about. Like, like is cancel culture real? Go on, then. Ask your oh, I, no, I just then. want your views on, like, what you think about the whole situation with J.K. Rowling, with, you know, David Williams was accused of having uh, racist elements in his books. Yeah. Well, I think what we should do 
is if black people are saying something is racist, mm-hmm. listen to them. And if trans people are saying this is transphobic, listen to them. Um, and don't dismiss them just because someone you, you admire, um, you don't want to see any fault in them because, you know, we all have faults and we all, um, fall short and we all, um, uh, are ignorant sometimes. And it's about, is that person willing to listen and learn or are they being, ignorant and stubborn with that ignorance you know so I just think these celebrities or authors or whoever it might be when they get called out like do they listen does their apology reflect their listening and their understanding of what this community has said to them or are they doubling down on ignorance you know and I think that's what we need to look for and I think some people do apologize um really well like Halle Berry recently turned down a role um, to play a trans man and I think her apology seemed genuine and it seemed to show she she's learning and um, you know trying to find out more about the trans community but definitely not taking this role anymore and um, you know didn't mean to offend anyone and you know some people would still say her apology wasn't good enough like um, or that she should have never considered the role it shouldn't have been made public but I don't think celebrities are always in charge of everything that gets made public. However, when they tweet and blog personally hateful things, then I think they should be held accountable for that. And what that looks like is is different, you know, for different people. So I don't know what, what should happen with David Williams' book. But And I haven't read whichever books are being accused of being um, problematic. But I know for a fact, you know, I grew up finding Little Britain funny. When I look back at it now, it's mm-hmm. horrendous. Like it's classist, it's fat shaming, it's um, it's racist. Like it, there's so many, it's misogynistic. There's so many things wrong with Little Britain that when I was younger and didn't know better, I thought it was funny. And now I am older and know better. I know it's not. But the thing about David Williams, like Williams, is he was a big man making that show and he should have known better. Like, and I imagine with the books, he probably does know better. Um, so I don't really know. Like I... We have to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially if, you know, they come out and apologize and, um, you know, and it seems genuine and they they then do something to make amends. That doesn't have to necessarily be like giving money or or whatever, but like something to make amends. Like, what do you do to show that you're sorry? Like, words are easy, um, says the writer. But like, <laughs> how are you actually, how are your future actions um, going to show? How are you going to make, um, you know, make connections with the communities that you've um, offended? Um, so this is this is what I ask of people. It's just to, to listen um, and don't dismiss people as trying to, ruin your livelihood because at the end of the day like these this kind of hateful language this kind of hateful rhetoric like it actually causes people to you know commit suicide it actually causes um a society to be you know ongoing prejudice in society because if a popular person says it it must be okay um and that's what we need to really reckon with that you know if you're an author that's selling millions of books or has a millions of followers um, you have a responsibility, what you say, not just in your books, what you tweet, what you blog, what you say in interviews as well. Dean. Yes. Where can people find you? Find you? Sorry. sorry <laughs> <I didn't really. laughs> 
Where can people find you online? I guess they can start with my website, which is deanatta.com. So D-E-A-N-A-T-T-A.com. And then Dean Atta on all the social media. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I've got a page as well. YouTube, I have a channel, but I'm not like you. Like I'm not like amazing on YouTube, but I've got some stuff <laughs> on there, some videos of me doing poems. You've got some great stuff. I've, you've yeah, got some of your performances, yeah, so. which is done in. Yeah, but for a long time, a lot of my performances went on other people's channels because I just wasn't fussed about YouTube. But then it's nice to actually have a centralized place for your own videos. So I do try and put some up there when I when I can be bothered. But at the moment... There's so much to keep on top of, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, and I'm working on my next book now. So I'm not going to be as active on social media for the coming months, but I'll be I'll be lurking in the background. And every now and again, I'll, I'll pop out and say hello. <laughs> <laughs> you, you keep your head down yeah. and, and write another masterpiece. I Dean, final, final thing. Hmm. What advice would you give to your younger self? Um, Wow. Be prime minister because anyone can. (laughs) I'd vote for you. Yay. When I was younger, I genuinely had aspirations to be a prime minister. And as I kind of got orbiting around politics and, and met some political figures, I got quite disillusioned by it. But I actually think um, that was a that could have been a reason to get more into it and like shake things up a bit. But I found I went on a path of less resistance, which was the arts. And I think the arts is such a welcoming and inclusive space um, for the most part. Like, and so I think you know I've gone into a, a career that that kind of has given me um, you know so much back. You know, and I think politics seems quite a thankless job like um and pretty hard but I think I'm made of the stuff to be able to do it um but there's still time right so I might be more advice to my older self is like be prime minister (laughs) (laughs) I love it amazing thanks Dean it's been an honor having you on today and um I can't wait for the next book Hello again, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Equality Education. Thank you so much for listening. If you did like it, then please consider helping me to make more episodes by becoming a Pop and Ollie site member at popandollie.com. You can do this for as little as £2 a month and you will receive some really awesome perks too. So please go and check it out. Okay, thanks again for being here and I can't wait to have another episode for you next time. Take care.